This interview is brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. You can check out the full episode at LickinOnLending.com. Folks, today on the Hot Topic segment, we got Mike Frantorni joining us. He's the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Research and Industry Technology. I always love his perspective on technology. He is, of course, with the MBA, and we're thrilled with our partnership. Mike, it's so good to have you back here with us. Really appreciate you being here, friend. Thank you for inviting me, Dave. Always glad to be on your program. Always good to have you here, and there's so much going on. i got to go to this one real quickly. It's totally off script, but industry technology. The, the MBA tech conference is coming. When is that this year, by the way, and where will that be? It'll be in L.A., so downtown L.A., the L.A. Live, end of March. March 29th uh, through April 2nd. Yeah, it's a great conference. I encourage people to check it out. Is there any technology trends you study this year in the research area? Is there any trends that you think that are just that are really capturing your attention right now before we get into the economic stuff? I mean, because technology seems to be such a big part of the future of the industry and those that succeed and those that might not. We've done a study. We called our our technology profile survey the past couple of years. And really what that's focused on is the the take-up by lender customers for various different technology capabilities. So we're seeing much greater use of e-signatures on all kinds of documents. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with uh, you know Fannie's Day One Certainty and Freddie's similar program, much greater use of automated ways to verify income assets, employment. That's really where sort of that customer-facing portion of the technology seems to have been the focus the last couple of years. I think now probably seen a little bit more focused on productivity enhancing tools and I think that really has benefited lenders through this refi wave. Yeah, it's so true. Well, let's get into talking about what we can anticipate. And so let's do a review, an overview of your uh, economic forecast for 2020. If you kind of just kind of go through some of the high levels, then I have some specific questions. Of course, we'll get around to Joe and Alice and Alan who will be here talking about this. So give an overview of what you're expecting on a high-level basis for 2020. Sure thing. And I think you, you start with looking at the absolute biggest picture, which is globally – Uh, economic activity really has slowed, and that has impacted the U.S. You see it in a downturn in manufacturing activity worldwide, some of that related to the trade war and the tensions between the U.S. and China. And we think in terms of big-picture numbers, that's really going to be impacting the U.S. in, in the first half of 2020. So we're expecting slower growth first half, a little faster growth than the second. So whereas 2019 was a 2% growth year, we think 2020 will be a 1% growth year. And 2021 and beyond, we think we'll, we'll pick back up to something closer to 2%. With that, it's important to remember where we're starting from. I mean, the job market is as strong as it has been in 50 years. The unemployment yeah, rate down to 3.5%. So a little bit slower economic growth in 2020, that may peak up a little bit, but we think it'll still average below 4% for the year. So for that potential home buyer feeling really confident about their current job, seeing their wages increase, I think uh, Joe is exactly right. The, the wage growth number in December is down, but it's still increasing in excess of inflation. So we expect a, a strong job market in 2020, but not as strong as it was in 2019. From the perspective of rates, you know, you start with the Federal Reserve. They see this strong job market. Uh, they also are seeing inflation uh, staying really very steady. 
And uh, as a result, we think they are going to be on hold for at least the next year, possibly the next year and a half. Couple all that together, we think we're just in an environment where, from the perspective of an economic forecaster, uh, mortgage rates are not going to move very much uh, over these next couple of years. So, you know, if you're looking at the Freddie Mac survey rate, we we think it's going to be right in the neighborhood of you know three seven three eight over the next couple of years. Now, I emphasize that's from the perspective of an economic forecaster. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, I, I I put out a page which shows a quarterly average or a closing yield for the year. I think from the perspective of folks. On a desk, uh, you know, managing capital markets for their lender, this is a maddening time, right? Because, uh, you know, Joe walked through some of the economic variables that ordinarily you would expect might be moving rates up or down. Uh, And, you know, those, uh, we think, generally are going to keep us in a fairly narrow range. But it's these unexpected issues. It's what's going on with Iran. It's what's going on with respect to the... U.S.-Chinese trade negotiations, it's the steady barrage of tweets, which just lead to uh, an unbelievable amount of both political and geopolitical uncertainty. Couple that with the fact that, for goodness sake, we're in an election year, and we're in an election year that's going to have an active impeachment trial. There's just these factors well outside of the economic variables we generally track, which are going to lead to -to day-to-day volatility in the market. So I think, you know, Every month, every quarter, maybe we wind up not very far away from where we started, but the path we take to get there is going to be bouncy. So that's that's how I think you think about the year ahead. When you look at the year ahead and you hear these numbers you just put out, that ex- kind of explains why you see GDP down at 0.8, down significantly, which is great contrast to the previous uh, year and the first quarter, first two quarters. So that kind of explains that as the, the, just the global slowdown. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. It's it, unbelievable weakness in the manufacturing sector that's really more closely tied to global trade. And you see that not just in the U.S., but in Europe, in Asia. Perhaps we're beginning to see that bottoming out and beginning to see a little bit of recovery abroad, but the U.S. was sort of late to this slowdown, so I think we're going to be late to the recovery in the manufacturing sector. But if you look close at our markets, Consumers are doing pretty well because of that strong job market, and housing, after lagging the economy for years, really has found a new gear. I mean, I expect the yeah. Joe mentioned the housing starts numbers coming out this Friday. Uh, it really has picked up quite a bit. I think that's fundamentally very, very positive uh, for lenders because if that's one of the factors that we think is going to support more home sales this year and more purchase originations. Amazing. Well, let's go over to Joe and get a couple of his questions. Joe? Yeah, you mentioned the presidential election year coming up, and I I wondered if uh, there was an expectation built into your numbers one way or the other in that, and and how big an issue would uh, the alternative event be to the market? It's a great question. Um, You know, Typically, uh, we're going to make a forecast assuming things kind of stay the same. Uh, you yeah. listen to our political prognosticators like Bill Kilmer, and you know that mm-hmm. that's a, a, a reasonable guess right now. Incumbency uh, gives a, a lot of advantages to a candidate, and so uh, that would say we we stay the course. But I mean, to your question, you know, you listen to some of the proposals of 
some of the candidates, it could be a very, very different world, both for the broader economy and for housing and mortgage markets, depending upon who wins. So uh, that is yet another very, very large uncertainty in this forecast. And, Mike, would that begin as soon as one of those began to show better polling numbers even, or would it take all the way going through the election? You know, it's different for the different variables in the forecast. As you know, financial market variables can turn on a dime. And so, yeah, if if certain candidates, you know, a Warren or a Sanders, really looked like they were going to be favored to win here, I think you would see financial markets reacting strongly as they already have. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the more uh, left-leaning candidates uh, seems to take some advance in in the polls. But the economic variables, for the most part, are, are, are going to only reflect changes in actual policy. Now, I think this overall uncertainty I'm talking about, it definitely impacts. So, you know, if you're a business leader deciding to build a factory or do a lot of hiring or make some layoffs or reorient your business, in a time of great uncertainty, you might just sit on your hands and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait for this to resolve before I make my big bet. But I don't think we're seeing evidence of that yet. I think most of the weakness we're seeing really is related to the trade war and some of the other geopolitical issues. Good questions. One of our listeners just wrote in, and they they must be having your economic forecast up there, but they said in second quarter of 2019, there's a big spike in personal consumption expenditures. Is that an aberration? Was there some significance about that? And more importantly, can we anticipate that? Because that has a significant impact on how the feds look at things. At least that's what my understanding is. Your thoughts? You know, I think it it was just some noise. This was second quarter of 19 they're looking at. Yep, Um, that's what they were. Yeah, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts out seasonally adjusted data. So, you know, at least in in theory, there shouldn't be recurring seasonal patterns once they do that adjustment. It's a really, really difficult statistical job. And so there's been a recurring weakness Mm -hmm. in their first quarter data. But I'm not aware of any aberration in in that second quarter data. Yeah. Well, I'm, it'll be interesting. It looks like it's pretty stable. You have a 2.2, 2.2, 2.7, 2.9. Good stable numbers in 2020. And then we just got another question. It says, do you see the – one of our listeners has already jumped into 2021, obviously trying to anticipate how long is this going to go. I don't know what the, what's motive behind that. But, I mean, looking at these numbers and then looking at your forecast, I mean, it, it looks like this could be really two unusually good years to be in the mortgage lending business. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't mention the the origination forecast yet. Let me let me talk about that for yeah, a sec. Let's go there. So, and I think you got to start from 2018, right? As everybody on the phone knows, I mean, 2018 was just a miserable year, 1.6 trillion, and you know, all the talk was around margin compression, mm-hmm. and you know, many many lenders had a, a real struggle to to break even for the year, and you know, we were expecting coming into 2019 that there was going to be a, a tremendous amount of consolidation if, if that trend were to continue. First quarter of 19 was weak, and then we had the drop in rates and the refi wave, and a lot of people sort of rode that to profitability. So we are seeing margins in the second and third quarter of 19, you know, 65 to 75 basis points. And I know Marina Walsh is going to be on your show next week. Yeah, um, looking so far. And she can, she can dive deep into some of those profitability numbers and sort of what we were seeing there. 
And then she and I are actually going to both be presenting down in New Orleans at the IMB conference. So again, if you wanted the, the complete version of both the economic forecast and what's going on in terms of the benchmarking data. But, uh, you know, 19 full year, we, as a result of that refi wave, we were north of $2 trillion in volume. And Again, I know a lot of lenders really, really took that as an opportunity to sort of, you know, rebuild their stores and, uh, you know, get, 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 on, to get on top of this business once again. Right. We think it'll drop a bit to $1.9 trillion in 2020. So although rates have remained low, you know, refi business just tails off. You know, you, you talk about, about burnout that, you know, once that homeowner mm. has seen a 3.8 rate, the first time, you know, the second, third, and fourth times they see a 3.8 rate, they're, they're not quite as excited about it. They're not going to jump in and refi again. So we expect refi activity is going to tail off through the first half of 2020, expecting about $600 billion in refi for the full year. And honestly, I think by the second half of 2020, it, it might start feeling reminiscent of 2018 again. So oh, really? you know, we'll, be, we'll be back to a majority purchase market. Lenders are going to be fighting for for every loan, and I think you might see some compression of margins once again. 2021, about 1.7 trillion refi, kind of gets to a floor of around 430 billion. Purchase continues to grow, so you know we think you know, there are just extraordinarily favorable demographics in this uh, country right now that you're going to see millennial buyers sort of powering demand for homes the next you know four to five years and that coupled with a, a reasonably strong job market and increasing availability of new units you know very very bullish on the purchase market that that next four or five years you know refi will come and go you know as as rates dip but you know i think that purchase market is, is really where the, the better growth is going to be over the next couple of years. Yeah, and there's still going to be refinance opportunities within this, uh, as long as the rates are there, but definitely the purchase market is where you need to be focused, should be there for many reasons. Alice, I'm going to come to you in just a minute, uh, then Alan, uh, but we just got another question in, and they're talking about, you know, what do you anticipate of the volume that's going to be coming in new originations? What percentage is going to be millennials? And then what about the first wave of Gen Zs or Gen Zers? entering the market. Could we could we actually see the first wave start entering? Absolutely. Good question. So, you know, we're in a place right now where, you know, fifty five percent or so of purchase units are going to first time home buyers. Right. And you know, vast mm-hmm. majority of those are, are millennials. And that number just keeps that share just keeps getting higher year after year. You know, one of my favorite statistics and I'm an economist, so I'm allowed to have a favorite statistic, right? Uh, <laughs> is that there are you know 4.7 million 28-year-olds in this economy right now, and you know that just is the largest single cohort in the U.S. population. And just as that group moves forward, you know, closer and closer to peak first-time homebuyer age of you know, call it 32 or 33, that's really what's powering this demand. Now, to your point, behind them, the, you know, let's say sort of the 22 to, to 27-year-olds, you know, those right. are potential buyers, too, and you start getting some of those initial Gen Z uh, buyers. It is a smaller cohort, right? So, you know, you look at the U.S. population trends, you had the baby boom, and then you had the baby bust, for those f- folks yep. born between 65 and, and, you know, 80 or so. And then the Gen Zers are the children of the... Uh, 
the Gen Xers. And so that's going to be a smaller cohort as well. You know, longer term, I don't know if you saw this news, Dave, but, you know, the the fertility rate in the United States is, is at a record low. People are, are just not, that, yeah. just not having children. So, you know, that, that's, that's a was, problem to worry about 25 years from now in terms of housing demand. Right. But you know, it certainly impacts people today as well of, you know, whereas the family with three kids needed a different house than the, the family with one or two kids, right? So, which, which really gets to household formation. Do you look at household formation? Is that relevant? Yeah, absolutely. We track that. And we put out a, a white paper a couple of years ago, really forecasting that, whereas for much of the past 20 years or the much of the, past, the prior 20 years, Household formation in the U.S. averaged about one to one point million, one to one point one million right. households per year. We thought from the fifteen to twenty-five time period, it was going to average closer to one and a half. That prediction is right thus far. We have seen a, a marked step up in household formation as this big cohort gets to the age where they yeah. they move out on their own. And I think that's going to continue. And some of them are going to buy. Some of them are going to rent. Our industry needs to finance all of that, right? So one way or another, it's a tremendous amount of housing demand. But I mean, to your overall question, that rate of household formation is one of the things we watch most closely. It is actually it's tough to measure because there are various different surveys that give you slightly different answers. But definitely something we think about a lot and, and track pretty closely. Which survey would you pay most attention to on household formation? I guess your own. Do you guys actually publish your own survey now? We don't, but um, the the Census Bureau has one called the okay. Housing Vacancy Survey, and you know, that's oh. available quarterly. Uh, so it's a good high frequency indicator, but it can be a little noisy. And then there's there's another couple like the the American Community Survey and the Current Population Survey. We we look at all of them and try to square them away, but it's a it's a tougher variable to get a read on than some of the other statistics we follow. Alice, you've been patient. I keep promising I'm going to come to you, and I. Apologize, all these questions are popping in from uh, from listeners. So, but Alice, what questions do you have for Mike? Hey, Mike. Well, Hello. I love all the conversation. So, I one area we haven't touched on yet is home values. So, perhaps we could just get your thoughts on this spring market. I know you know with everything else going on, like you've said, we can't predict later in the year, but maybe you can give us a little glimpse into the near term on uh, home values. And really, are there any good micro markets you like to watch other than just the national numbers? Good question. So first, you know, big picture, we see a continuation of the decelerating trend in home price growth uh, this year relative to last year. So, you know, 18, we saw home prices nationally growing at 6%. Last year, 4%. We think this year we're at 3%. So while housing demand is still strong, we do see some additional units coming on the market. And on net, we think it's kind of a positive because you're you're bringing home price growth closer to wage growth, which for affordability for that entry-level buyer who's so important to our market, I think that's on net a positive development. But you know, it does make you watch your servicing book a little more closely because you might start seeing a little pickup in delinquencies with uh, an increase in unemployment and some slower home price growth. Now, in terms of of markets, I would characterize it, you know, again, big picture. If you look at some of the different home price metrics, the the Case-Shiller is one that gets a lot of uh, media attention. 
that's one that's really focused on your largest metro areas. And they've actually seen home price growth stabilize and, and pick up a little bit over the last couple of months. So, you know, in some of those largest metro areas where it's tougher to build, where supply is in more constrained, the demand's still there. So home price is looking a little more resilient than in other parts of the country where, you know, builders are, are more e- are, are have an easier time putting up additional units. In terms of specific markets, really the only market where you're seeing declines in home prices right now is San Francisco. And you know that's one that had just run so fast for so many years and, and prices really got out of reach of potential buyers. So not surprising in a in a high cost coastal market like that that you're gonna see a you know a leveling out period for a time and then, then they'll start increasing once again. You know, outside of that it, it is hard to see any weakness. You know, some of the fastest growing markets, Mountain West, so, you know, obviously Denver's one that's gotten a lot of attention, but and one that, that I, I've come to love based on some uh, some visits there recently, but, you know, Boise, Idaho, fastest growing housing market in the country, and wow. that's both in terms of home prices and just, you know, pace of building relative to existing stock. So a lot of migration from high-priced places like California and Washington uh, into some of the Mountain West uh, markets and and they're benefiting as a result. That is interesting. When when you Alice, any more questions you have? No, that was. But it's fun to use the term uh, stock with Idaho because it's is it livestock <laughs> yeah. that's growing. Yeah, livestock. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Good play there. That's great. Good catch. Yeah, Good catch. You know, one of the things, Mike, that I've been thinking about is the decade-long imbalance between supply and demand. Are we going to finally see home builders start stepping up and relieving some of that? Or what are your thoughts on the whole supply-demand imbalance? Yeah, and certainly for the decade, but particularly the last three or four years, you know, we've known the demand is there, and it really has been a supply-constrained market. We're seeing inventories tight, uh, existing in new homes, you know, just about everywhere in the country. I mean, I mentioned Denver. I mean, I was just there for a visit, and they're they're still seeing, you know, weeks of supply as opposed to months that you're uh, more typically yeah. seeing. And you talk to builders, and, you know, it's the same set of issues that they'll highlight why they really can't pick up the pace faster than uh, what we've seen. And it's uh, a shortage of skilled tradesmen, trades folks, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, roofers, framers. They just they can't find the workers and can't complete the projects. And obviously there's a tie in there to immigration policy because they often would, would lean on sort of some, uh, some recent immigrants to, to fill some of those spots. And, and so that's not going away. And you know, you see wage growth in some of these skilled trades areas. It's twice the the rate of wage growth in other parts of the economy. So mm. that's going to continue to be a problem. The land development cycle is just a slow-moving process. And now the demand is sort of, yeah. you know, white hot in many areas, but you can only entitle and, you know, go through all the environmental, uh, you know, regulations. And, you know, the Trump administration was just talking about some of this, you know, trying to re-engineer and make this process a bit more efficient, but it's just slow moving. So there's still a shortage of developable lots out there. And, you know, builders take that finished lot and put a house on it, right? So there's there's another set of investors involved in taking raw land and, and getting it to a place where a builder can start. 
there are, are there other issues, you know, particularly your your smaller builders still talk about having difficulty getting acquisition development and construction financing where, you know, the larger public builders, you know, have access to the public capital markets. And again, wouldn't be complete, but, you know, any, any builder will tell you that just the amount of regulation they face in mm, trying to put up so units true. and sort of the, the, the nimbyism, the, the, the not in my backyard of nobody, everybody wants more affordable housing, nobody wants more density in their neighborhood, <laughs> right? So it's a, That's exactly so, so it's, true. A, it's a bit of a conundrum. That said, you know, you, you look at the pace of single-family starts, and it, it, it is increasing, and we expect it's going to increase again this year. It's more likely to show up, you know, a little further from the the city center, a little farther commute from from folks' jobs, because that's that's where it's easier to put up units. But we are seeing sort of you know average home price for that new home come down a bit and get closer to, if not a a true first time buyer, maybe that first move up buyer. So, you know, maybe that'll then open up a, a true entry level home for a for a first time buyer. We need that so badly. I have a friend of mine up in Dallas who is a major land developer. He goes, takes the raw land and brings it into lots. And he was talking about there's, they're trying to catch up. But it, it, to your point, they, there are so many factors, the regulatory environment, what they have to do. And then the resistance from community groups. It's, it's so true. Everyone wants more housing. They just don't want it near them and their neighborhood. But, uh, Alan, you are down in Ponte Vedra Beach. You've got some beautiful subdivisions down there and a pretty stable market. But uh, any questions you have for our guest, Michael? I do. Uh, and it is a good market. Actually, Jacksonville always ranks pretty high because it is a lower cost of living with no state income tax and a high population. And we have a lot of colleges here and a lot of millennials if you look at the borders between Georgia and uh, Alabama. So anyways, everybody's focused on technology, Michael, right? And everybody's focused on, you know, acquisition of the customer. And really it comes down right now to customer service. Rates are still historically low. They're going to continue, as you were saying on the forecast, from your point of view uh, and your side of the industry, historically low. But lenders are focusing on thing, a lot of stuff. And, and I truly believe that too much is too much, right? Um, the KISS acronym is probably good. You don't need all the technology to win over clients uh, or new borrowers. So I was just curious, you know, I know a lot of people are pushing like e-notes and hoping to get a better price for their asset. What is your thought overall on, you know, sort of lenders, competition, acquisition of clients and, and how that really helps their bottom line and possibly, you know, drive a better asset? Man, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, a conversation I've had with a number of lenders, you know, over these past six months or so, I, I think shed some, some light on that where, you know, what, what they've said is, you know, yes, we've made a number of technology investments to try to make our process more efficient and, you know, try to keep a, a lid on that cost to originate. And, you know, whether it's uh, through the technology, through outsourcing, or, you know, sometimes through just some uh, process redesign. And, you know, sometimes those three can sort of work together. And what, I, what I've heard a number of folks say is that, uh, you know, this refi wave they just felt like they had more tools in the toolbox than they did previously. And so, you know, they're able to manage the, the, the factory so that, you know, 
turn times aren't extending the way they did previously. And yet you're not seeing people hire to the same extent as they did previously. And so, you know, some of that's, you know, making use of the tools that you've been investing in the past couple of years. Some of that is just being really, really smart about sort of how you're organizing the operation. And, you know, heard, heard some interesting sort of tips and tricks from some some very smart lenders out there about, you know, how they were able to manage this refi wave, they think better than they did in, in prior waves. I mean, to the point of a lot of people held off refinancing. I did the last cycle until I finally rates got down so low, and I just kind of like, I've got to do it again. And because of the technology that made it so easy, it went just so, uh, I would like to say effortless, but it seemed it was so much easier. So I think that might be entering as we make it easier for the consumer, there's going to be less resistance going out to going through that quote-unquote pain. Uh, a lot of questions are coming in. We've got the IMB conference coming up. So I'm going to tie one of the conferences, one of the questions into this. What do you envision as far as M&A activity? We're seeing a lot of it as our consulting firm, a lot of M&A activity. Are you going to see, do you anticipate seeing a lot of consolidation within the smaller to mid size lenders being aggregated up into larger ones? I do think this is going to be a busy year for that. And, you know, talking to to you, Dave, talking to some of the other folks active in this space, oftentimes what I hear is a lot of those M&A opportunities come from, you know, an owner who's been looking to retire. He didn't want to sell or she didn't want to sell in 2018, given just how, how rough that year was. Now, again, the place looks good, profitability looks strong. This might be a, a better opportunity as a seller. The buyers have always been out there. This just sort of narrows those bid-ass spreads, and maybe some more deals will get done this year. I anticipate that to be the case. We're sure seeing that. A lot of capital is flowing into the industry. But let's, as we wrap up this interview, let's talk about the IMB conference. You and Marina will be presenting there. You alluded to a couple of things you're going to be talking about, but give us a little more information. Why should people be there? Well, as you said, I would certainly highlight the session that Marina and I do because uh, if you uh, appreciate the information we've been talking about here, we'll just do a deeper dive with pictures, which uh, which is always a lot of yeah. fun. But, you know, the, the broader conference, this is really an important time for IMBs to really think about some of the regulatory and policy challenges that are confronting the industry. A, a lot of questions about really the strength of the IMB business model. Are IMBs able to fulfill their responsibilities to, to service loans uh, in the event of a, of a lack of liquidity in the market? And, you know, you have a number of regulatory agencies questioning that. And I think uh, as an industry and as individual companies, we kind of need to get our ducks in a row and really think about how to present the case for the, the strength of, of the IMB business model. So I know a, a good portion of the conference will be really asking participants to sort of put your heads together and think about this issue. We'll have representatives from some of the regulators there, as well as MBA leadership. So lots of reasons for you to attend. Again, a, a real key policy question for all MBA members, but uh, for our IMB members in particular. Yeah, that's so good. So true. I've got a call here with Shirlene Dasher. Uh, we're planning our session. I'm uh, 
having the honor to moderate a panel. It's the Managing Confidently Through Volatile Markets. So looking forward to that. We've got Brenda Clam, Allison Johnson of Success Mortgage, along with Eddie Perez and Susie Lindblom, uh, Chief Operating Officer of Planet Home. So we, we're real interesting. Looking forward to, at least most of them are confirmed, but I'm really looking forward to this conference. I think it's a great one. Head over to the MBA website, folks. Get registered for the IMB conference. It's coming up here right around the corner. I mean, really soon, within a few weeks. So we look forward to seeing you there, Mike. Appreciate you taking time being with us. Wish you the very best in this new year. And we're grateful to have the participation and the partnership with the NBA. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate it. Looking forward to having Marina on next week, folks. You will not want to miss that, as you did want to miss this podcast, but be sure to come back. Marina will be uh, talking a lot. I saw her at the Empire event, and I just love her sincerity. And when she and Mike are on the stage, it's just like everyone hangs there and listens to it. So, again, good reason to be at the IMB conference. So I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, Black Knight, Open Mortgage, Fedastra, the NBA, Lenders One, the Mortgage Collaborative, CMLA, Ainsworth Advisors, Knowledge Coop, Mobility RE, Velma, Vidyard, VendorSurf, and AI Assist. So good to have you here with us this week. Looking forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.